Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Manners. He is the Chief Strategy Officer for TaylorMed. Ian, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I'm happy to be here. So if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at this point. Um, you know, always important to get the context. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of got into the healthcare world from um, from the the pharma side of the business. I, for a number of years, was consulting with um, you know, pharma manufacturers on commercial issues like sales and marketing. And you know, it was really through that work that I initially got exposed to a, a, a very odd dilemma that we have in the world of of healthcare, and specifically as it relates to the 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 affordability challenges of medication. And that's that, you know, while the out of pocket costs for patients have been uh, rising so much over the last decade or even longer than that, um, there's actually a lot of, of funding available for these patients that goes underused. And so as I was thinking about what to do next with my career after consulting, I decided to try and address that challenge with technology. Um, at that point, founded a company called Viber, uh, created financial navigation software that we sold to hospitals and pharmacies. Um, and about 18 months ago, uh, we were acquired by a competitor of ours, TaylorMed, um, have since joined forces. And now I work on the combined uh, team here at TaylorMed, uh, working to address affordability challenges for patients. Fantastic. So um, before we dive into, you know, the, the approach to this let's if if we can let's just talk a little bit about this affordability issue with drugs because yeah. um you know and i'm going to pick on the the classic here insulin uh which was uh gifted to uh the medical community the patient community by the patent holders they each charged a dollar a piece is my recollection and here we are almost, if not 100 years later, and insulin is unaffordable at $1,500. And I know there's all sorts of rebates and funkiness, but I, I know that's not the problem that you're solving specifically. But mm -hmm. I'm, I think given your background, it's important to get a little bit of context. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's just one drug. And, yeah. and let's be clear, one that's in high usage shouldn't be unaffordable yet is yeah i mean i'm i i'm not uh, familiar enough to talk about the history of insulin but mm -hmm. what i can say is that um you know we have this this situation where uh the the cost that patients are being asked to bear um, as a result of both prices of both drug prices and the structure of our insurance system is has become very much detached from the value that they're getting from those from those medicines. You know, you end up with a patient who, you know, with the insulin example is diabetic and absolutely needs this medication without it would experience terrible health consequences that would be even more expensive to treat, not to mention the impact on their life. Uh, and yet we're asking patients to pay 
a significant portion of that cost. And um, you know, there are many situations where you know the drug prices could come down to a point where maybe they're you know very low cost generic and they wouldn't be expensive for patients. Um, and there's a category of drugs you know that sit there. Uh, and you know you've got solutions like you know the Mark Cuban cost plus drug company that are trying to say you know these are cheap drugs let's make them cheap, but then you have all this this whole category of newer novel therapies that you know legitimately have cost a lot of money to develop you know a lot of R and D expense has gone into that that needs to be recovered, and for those drugs they may be life saving as well often are and similarly we ask patients to pay. A large portion doesn't matter what the benefit is, and you know this puts us in a very odd place where uh, where patients are not um, you know are not really in control. They uh, could choose the only choice they have is to you know pay the large out of pocket cost for these drugs or to go without. And oddly enough, we're not incentivizing the right behavior financially. If you know if we want patients to be able to take the medications they need. Uh, to control a disease, to reduce costs overall, we should be making it more affordable, not less, to choose those medications. And as you noted, Nick, it's 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 very complex with many players involved, uh, but clearly the end result is just you know no one would choose that from the beginning. Right, and you know just for clarity, can you help us understand when you talk about benefit to the patient, what do you mean by that? What what benefits? specifically i mean i i, I know that sounds basic mm -hmm. but it's not in my mind i i have sort of various thoughts i'm curious to know when you talk about the patient assessing benefit from the value of whatever it is that they're paying this mm -hmm. higher and higher proportion what do you what do you mean by that i certainly depends on the on the drug right and and in the insulin example this is something that People need to live their lives. You know, you need it on an ongoing basis. But we've also got, you know, novel therapies in the cancer world where benefit means um, a slow in disease progression, means living longer, getting to spend more time with loved ones. Um, you know, we've got other advances in, you know, in areas like uh, Alzheimer's, where you know, if if we have some of these new drugs uh, fulfill their promises, we'll be able to see. Uh, see people live longer without experiencing dementia, you know, huge potential benefits for patients. Yeah. And um, also in a lot of cases, a situation where, like I said, even if you look at it from a purely economic perspective, um, taking those drugs is going to reduce overall costs for the system. Um, now, that's not true universally, right? Yeah. Of course, there are plenty of cases you can point to where you know, there's been a slight modification to a drug that already exists or a change in dosing or right. And you end up with costs that just don't, that these are not high value choices, right? And right. no one, no one looking at it objectively would say that these drugs should be inexpensive. Um, but we tend to just lump it all together and say, well, you know, you're going to be responsible for paying for this regardless of the benefit. Right. And, and I think that's important. You bring out exactly the point that was behind the, the question in my mind, which is, you know, value ultimately, as you describe it, I think everybody gets that from the patient mm -hmm. perspective. In the case of insulin, it's a life-saving drug, quite frankly. But uh, where I was getting to, and you, you, you described, is that sort of minor change or, you know, reformulation or even mm -hmm. a newer drug but comparatively speaking, doesn't perform anything significant. And I'm not sure that, 
patients necessarily understand that value. They struggle with that piece of it. But I think it's important to separate that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you rightly say, it's, you know, it, it, it's a, a, a minefield of variations and, you know, quite frankly, some misbehaviors. So, you know, let's be clear. I, I think anybody that's looking in the news or is unfortunate enough to turn on the TV, uh, even for five minutes, would see, um, you know, lots of coverage, I, I suspect, on medical debt and the challenge of the patient. And I, I think, as, as you're describing, it's this shift. We, we hear this a lot. There's the shift from other payers that you perhaps used to pay this now to the patient mm-hmm. is is that just the general trend do you think or is that something that you know is 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 inevitable that we're going to shift it over to the patients i think it's generally been the trend because it's probably the most uh the most straightforward and effective way that payers can control their overall mm. costs right is simply by disincentivizing the usage of care now it's a you know, it's it's a short-term decision, but largely a rational one. You know, patients shift from plan to plan all the time. If I can put something in place that controls my costs, it makes sense. But uh, but as we talked about, you know, it's it's not incentivizing behaviors. The the shifting of costs from um, from say employers or government to patients uh, in the long run, that's not about recovering. Right, they, patients are not a source of funding for for medical care. Um, it, the whole point is to create incentives, you know, to say, oh, you don't really need to go to the doctor every month. Uh, let's, I think once a year is enough, right? So let's charge you for those extra visits. And everyone would agree that's rational. Um, what happens, though, is when we apply the same sort of cost shifting or cost sharing to every single type of medical care that you can receive, which is how our system works, uh, you just end up penalizing people who, who are sick. That's that's the the end result of it, and you know the way that I've tried to think about this problem in my career is, uh, first of all, let's just you know because we all want our world to be better, we all want our system to work better. What would it look like in an ideal world? And that's probably something where we we have value based uh, insurance designs. We can actually change the cost sharing depending on what patients need and would benefit from. We're not there yet, so in the meantime. Uh, what can we do? You know, what are the more pragmatic uh, interventions that we can make to ensure that patients at least aren't always saddled with the types of bills that they can't afford? And that's that's what I've tried to do, you know, is through my career. And what we're doing at TaylorMed is to think about, you know, what's out there in terms of immediate solutions. Yeah. I, and I think you bring up an interesting point, uh, you know, for, for me, that and that that experience extends far beyond pharmacy. I, I remember mm-hmm. seeing it in my own clinical practice in the hospitals where, you know, there was some short term incentives, get people out quickly. And then yeah. <laughs> what we saw was they were readmitted and you didn't connect that. So it's that sort of holistic view that says, you know, you can't do these things in isolation. And, you know, your point about incentive we do. We've got to build in some incentives because otherwise, you know, that it's not a bottomless pool of resources that we can apply. Yeah. We have to apply them in the best way and sort of finding the best way, I think, is what's key here. So as, as you think about this, tell us how you're going about solving this problem. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So the the way that um, that we think about it is, you know, you've got patients who um, are facing a large cost share for an expensive medication or you know another type of hospital or physician service. And, you know, there is actually a very significant pool of funding out there that's available to offset it. Um, that's going to come in the form of assistance programs that are have a whole range of sources. They could be pharma manufacturers, nonprofit foundations, local charities. Um, you know, it's not in any way limitless, but um, there's actually a very large untapped pool of funding out there. Uh, problem is the eligibility rules, getting enrolled in these programs is very complex. And that's where, you know, that's where technology can come in. So um, what we do is we create technology that we, the, that we uh, deliver to healthcare providers and to pharmacies. It's going to proactively screen all patients who could potentially have an affordability challenge, and then to manage the process of actually getting that patient connected with the funds, the you know the the application forms, the enrollment process, the eligibility criteria, the consent, uh, all of those things leading up to you know connecting a patient who needs the funds with the funds that are available out there. Hmm. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Ian Manners. He's the chief strategy officer for TaylorMed. We were just talking about the application of this sort of collection of funds, which, you know, quite frankly, I'm sure there are people that listen to this and go, really? I, I didn't know that that was available. I mean, I, we see some of the coupons and, you know, some of those things, but it, it's not a sort of broad understanding of all of that. And Essentially, what you're doing is is trying to predict those people that need it. So, you know, there's a part of me that wants to understand how do you go about that? Mm -hmm. What are the sort of incorporations? Is is there um, is it is it good at it? And if so, why? And you know, what what are the consequences of that? And then, you know, what you do? I, I want to dive into what you do subsequently. But tell us how you sure. identify those people initially. Yeah, great questions. And starting with the prediction part, um, you know, it's 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 got a few inputs and it's not perfect, but the process we follow is to primarily look at a patient's insurance benefits. Uh, and so, you know, what our technology does is take in information about someone's insurance. We do that by hooking into the the health IT systems that already exist, you know, an EMR or a pharmacy operating system. We can get that information about their insurance. And then to line that up with the drugs that have already been prescribed. We're not in the business of, you know, steering patients towards one treatment path mm -hmm. or the other, but rather to say, okay, given what a clinician has determined is the best course of treatment here and the patient's insurance, what's, you know, what's directionally the uh, out-of-pocket cost that they're likely to incur. And we're able to do that most of the time. It's not perfect because especially with certain types of insurance and in the medical benefit world, um, we can't always get perfect information, but what it allows the um, you know the users of our system to do is to just prioritize to say you know if I have limited time, let me sort my list of uh, patients who I can help to maximize the impact. Because um, what we unfortunately find is that um, healthcare providers are really in the best possible situation to intervene here, right? They know everything about the patient; they're trusted, um, a, tr a trusted person, but very understaffed, especially in the hospital world. And so what they're often doing is just triaging and thinking, you know, how can I prioritize my time best? That's what the the technology can really help with. So I, I, I think, you know, 
what stood out to me, I've got to be honest, is that one of the key predictors, and I know it's not the only one, but the fact that it's such a significant one tells me a lot about the insurance system and the fact mm. that, you know, essentially, I think what you're describing is good and bad insurance um, yeah. as, a, as a sort of consequence, particularly downstream to the individuals, which, you know, is a little bit troubling, but that's yeah. not a problem that you're going to fix. But hey, understand it and you know but there's a part of me that says you should publish that list so that people know not to sign up if that's well you know choice. people may have i think uh signed up not not in a way that was opaque you know it was transparent about oh, absolutely. The design. that doesn't mean that it's easy to understand lots of people choose insurance based on the premiums and of course as we were just talking about you know the way that that insurance companies can achieve those low premiums uh, is by having a high cost share associated with it, right? And you know, if you especially when you're healthy, you certainly don't expect to be able to, to yeah. meet those medical care. That medical care. Um, you know, the other the other side of the coin, of course, is the need. Uh, there are people who have the resources and the income to pay those out of pocket costs. We it's harder for us to bring that into the picture. So that's mm -hmm. really up then to the healthcare provider or the staff member who's talking to patients to figure out. Okay, maybe you have a high out-of-pocket cost. Let me share that information with you and see if it's even a concern. If it's not, I can move on to the next patient who needs my help more. Yeah, I, and to be honest, I, I'm I'm not calling you out as you know. It it just strikes me through through that conversation, and I, you know, I don't think it's easy to solve. It does sort of meet the need. There's a lot about health literacy. I'll own up and say, each and every year, I'm confused by the choices I'm offered. Um, in, you know, health insurance. And I feel like I'm reasonably well educated and I know a little bit about healthcare and medicine, yet even I am. So huge problem. <laughs> so I am too. And, and none of us can predict the future, right? As much as we would like to. I can't decide next year what my healthcare, even if I had perfect information, right? What my healthcare needs are going to be and right. therefore choose the right insurance plan for me. Yeah, I, I I definitely describe it as going to Vegas each and every year. It's, you know, what Absolutely. do I think? Because if I knew I was going to be sick, I'm going to go anyway. Yeah, choose it's, a different plan. It's a, 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 as a, as an immigrant to this country, I'm just going to say crazy. <laughs> yeah, so, no one can explain it except to, to explain the history, right? right and that it right. doesn't still doesn't make sense. <laughs> so you've identified them, and I'm guessing you have a whole process to identify these resources, mm. and then you go through a process to match them. And it sounded like critical in here, and you know, key element is you know satisfying the criteria, hopefully, so that they get not only matched appropriately. But once they're matched, they meet the criteria and can actually apply and get those benefits. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, exactly right. And it's all, you know, for the most part, this is public information. So there's no secrets that we're able to uncover, but cataloging it and creating a rules engine that matches the patients up does, you know, require a good amount of effort building technology to automate that process as much as possible. But we're able to catalog, you know, well over 5,000 programs that are out there. And some of them are small, local, right? These aren't all, all big sources of funding. Uh, but, you know, cataloging them first and then keeping them up to date uh, is something that's kind of critical to this whole process and something we do with a combination of people and technology. Uh, so that at the end of the day, you've got a patient who could potentially benefit 
um, all of these thousands of resources out there and uh, the software is able to match them up so that you don't need a person sitting there in front of Google asking, you know, what's this patient eligible for? So what's the process? I mean, you talk about all those resources publicly available and say, you know, it's not a secret, but it is a secret for a lot of people because they mm -hmm. don't know. So how are you right. going about that? What's the, the, there has to be some component of this that makes it special because, you know, mm -hmm. there's clearly a need and you're meeting that need. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the sources of funding, we like to think that that's not, you know, like I said, it's not a secret. So it's not something that, you know, we think is the entire reason that anyone would use our, our technology. It's about the entire uh, solution. But, you know, when it comes to the programs themselves, uh, you know, we have to do things like track closely any new FDA approvals or when um, when when medications go off patent protection and they're new generics. Uh, you know, we have to look at any tips that we get from our, our customer base, our user base about new local charities that have come up. And so it's just a constant process of doing our research internally and then looking for changes. And that's where technology really helps out is to, to watch all of these sources of funding for any change. And then a, a human can review them before they're actually published in our database. And, and then the matching process that you do, what's mm -hmm. that and how does that get actual resources to the individual? Yeah, so you know the eligibility part is going to be based on things like someone's insurance type, as we talked about, the medications they're on, their diagnosis codes, all that goes into it. Uh, but that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. That just tells you, hey, this patient could benefit from a program. <clears throat> from there, there's typically an enrollment process that they have to go through. The forms are not, you know, the common application. A lot of people, you know, when I talk to them, compare this to the world of. I don't know, it could be either college applications or looking for financial aid, but sadly, there's no even common application for it. Um, so instead, we have to catalog that, help as much as possible with technology to, to simplify it, um, and, and we're doing more and more of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it does require a person um, to navigate the process. And so, you know, when we're working with providers or pharmacies, they have staff members who will often help patients uh, to get through this. But they don't have enough people. Um, they they can't get to everyone, and a lot of times, as a result of that, it ends up being a very reactive process. It's not their fault; they're just under resourced. Uh, and so, one of the things that we've also been thinking about lately is: can patients get more involved, so that I'm just not, not just you know waiting for my provider or pharmacy to help? Um, and I think you know by by allowing people to choose, kind of meeting them where they are. Um, that, that there is a chance for more patients to take control, to get more involved in the financial assistance process. So, um, you know, you're, you're meeting a specific need. It sounds predominantly around the, the pharmacy area. Mm -hmm. in, in what time we have left, where do you see all of this going? Great question. I think in the short term, uh, we're in a somewhat stalemate. You know, we've got uh, we've got a lot of movement. Um, you know, where uh, you know the, the the payers out there are you know trying to figure out what to do about these types of assistance programs, and we've got changes to the way that that assistance programs are structured. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same. Band-Aid solution, as we were talking about earlier, right? It's still the fact that the design of the system is not optimal. The optimist in me would say that longer term, 
uh, we are going to see more changes to the way that insurance is structured. You know, we can become smarter about this medication is life-saving, absolutely worth it. No copay, right? Zero dollars. But this one, not really a big benefit there. Uh, let's make sure that there's a strong incentive to think about it before choosing that medication. And I'd like to think that, you know, over the more 10-year-plus horizon, uh, that's more and more how these affordability challenges will be solved. Fantastic. So sounds exciting. I think, you know, meeting a need, obviously not solving sort of core problems that we talked about at the beginning, but appreciate you talking about them and, you know, diving into that a little bit. Um, you know, obviously good news for folks to match them to the existing resource. You know, this is available stuff, but people are not matched. It's it's yeah. a mismatch problem, which is always, you know, very disappointing. Um, unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we've uh, run out of time. So it just remains for me to uh, thank you for joining us. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Nick. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at Dr. Nick One on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, The Incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. Evolution.